I'd like to chart a course for us. We're going to start first with the text. We're going to examine the text uh, word by word to a degree. We're going to move quickly through that. We're going to land on some principles that we get from the text. We're not taught about everything that's there, but we will cover the main ideas. And then we're going to wrap up with some application to figure out how do we wrap up Christmas, move into a new year as we go for the win. Let's start in verse 7. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, this comes just after he had listed things that were to his credit. They were status symbols. They were accomplishments in his life. Paul was a citizen of Tarsus. It's interesting that it's marked this way in the scripture because only wealthy families could retain their citizenship under the Roman Empire. Paul was from a wealthy family. He grew up in luxury. He was well-educated actually in two places. He studied theology in Jerusalem and Greek culture at the University of Tarsus. Paul takes all of his best training from the secular world, all of his accomplishments in the religious world, and says in the stunning statement, whatever was my gain, I have now counted as a loss. What he's going to be setting up is that he's going to take all of his accomplishments, all of his status, and he's going to say, in comparison to something else, these things that normally would be okay, these things that would normally be good, I'm actually going to consider them garbage because they're going to slow me down. Paul had previously put confidence in his flesh, the things that his birth, his family, and his achievements had gained him. He saw those as the way that he earned favor with God. And he now says, these things which I used to see as my credit, I now see as a loss. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, the word loss is a reference to the debit side of the ledger. These things which Paul used to take pride in, he now is somewhat sorrowful over for the way he viewed them. His education, his status, his family weren't sinful in themselves. It's the way he viewed them, particularly the way he viewed them as making him better than other people and the way he thought that they earned him favor with God. He counts all of these loss for the sake of Christ. Perhaps over the holidays, spending time with family that you hadn't seen in a while, you had a chance to share a story. And in sharing a story, you had trouble getting the words out, and you actually started the story several times before ever getting to the point. Maybe it's not you. Maybe there's somebody in the family that always gets the story started and never finished. Paul actually is struggling. He just doesn't do it verbally as though he's speaking to somebody. He does it in the holy word of God where it's actually written. I want you to look at verse 8 and see the word indeed. Translators struggle how to come across with this word because Paul actually starts the idea five times. We only get one word indeed, but it's actually literally, if it was going to be translated, would be yes, indeed, therefore, at least even. He starts with several words like he cannot figure it out. So he starts by saying, I've got this past. And I used to view it in a pretty particular way. I was given a lot of things. I had a silver spoon in my mouth when I was born. And on top of that, I worked really hard. I used to view that as what made me better than you and made me good with God. I I consider that a loss now. But now he wants to make even a bigger statement as though that's possible. And he says, I count everything a loss. He does this in one swooping motion because the word for loss in Greek is singular. He's saying, I'm taking everything in my life and considering it a loss 
because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, Jesus is so incredibly wonderful. He is so wonderful that compared to knowing him, everything in my life is rubbish. The word rubbish here can mean garbage, but it's a pretty colorful word in Greek. It can come across a few ways. One, it can mean just trash. It can mean something only fit for a dog. And it can also mean, as some of you will notice in your translations, dung, human feces. And you're like, oh, no, don't talk about that. Paul is putting it forward and saying, all the great things in my life are trash. Not by themselves. Matter of fact, as we read Paul, we learn that Paul's thankful for every good thing. He he rejoices even in difficult situations. He says every good and perfect gift is from God. So this isn't a sense of being unthankful for things in life. This isn't in a sense of being uh, critical of the things that he has experienced and received good and bad. He is just saying, compared to Christ, I see everything as a single solitary loss. I would give up everything if I could know Christ. Notice the expression, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. This is not the surpassing worth of knowing about Christ Jesus. This is not the surpassing worth of knowing facts concerning Christ Jesus. The word for knowing here is a word for experience. We would probably view it in our culture as a word for relationship. It is not knowledge that comes merely by knowing facts about, but it's a relation, it's a knowledge that comes by interaction with. He wishes to know Christ, have a relationship with him, and he wishes to gain him. Verse 9 says he wants to be found in him. The idea here is actually to be found out. It's having the kind of life that clearly aligns with being in Christ. He wishes it possible to be discovered. If he was laid open, viewed for who he really was, to be somebody who is in Christ. And now Paul demonstrates what sort of radical change has taken place in his life. Commentators think perhaps it was 30 years previously that Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and went from being a persecutor of the church, as our text alludes to, to being a defender of the church, a leader in the church, and a lover of Christ. During this transition... He wants to go from a righteousness that he thought he was earning. Notice it says, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law. The law here is a reference to the commands of God, the ethical and spiritual demands that God makes on people because he is the creator and has the right to demand of us whatever he wishes. But Paul says, no, my righteousness isn't of my own doing anymore. It's rather that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is imputed righteousness, and we'll talk more on that when we look at principles from the text. Again, we come up to the idea of knowing Christ. Notice verse 10, that I may know him, to come to know by experience. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 It's written that Jesus came to give us understanding, 
so that we may know him who is true. This idea again, Christ comes so that we might have knowledge, not just of or about God, but a relationship with him. Paul wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection and he wants to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is interesting. I'd like you, if you've got your Bibles open, to put your finger, if you could, on the word resurrection in verse 10 and also put your finger on the word resurrection in verse 11, very close together. Those are two different Greek words which have led commentators to try to figure out what exactly is Paul getting at. If nothing else, verse 11 means that Paul wants to know Christ and to walk with him. Knowing his power, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him. So that eventually he would attain to the resurrection from the dead. But as Bible students mull over this verse... It seems that perhaps this is actually a Greek pun. It, it's an expression that doesn't quite come across word for word. But Paul is saying here that he wants to live as a spiritually alive man among spiritually dead people. Remember when Jesus in Luke 9 said, let the dead bury their dead? He's saying, let the spiritually dead bury their physical dead. Here Paul perhaps is laying out that... I want to, by knowing Christ, by experiencing his power, the power that resurrected him from the dead, and actually being with him so closely that I will suffer as well so that I could become like him in his death, that I will then be walking about as a spiritually live person in a culture of spiritually dead people. As Paul looks out, he is able to say, I see dead people, but they're walking And they're moving and they're eating. He wants to be a spiritually live person connected to the resurrection of Christ, which will certainly lead to his own resurrection one day. Now, in the midst of all this grand language about how I'll give up everything for Christ, I'll even take his suffering. Paul comes with now a level of self-evaluation, humility and transparency to the people he's leading. Instead of being on a pity party that Paul is in prison while he writes this, he actually tells the church at Philippi, I've actually not made this real in my life yet. Notice verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. The word press on there is an Olympic runner term. It means to pursue with incredible athletic speed to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice the uh, make it my own and Jesus Christ making Paul his own. The word make there means to lay hold of, to seize, to catch hold and pull down. Uh, Being in the city of Indianapolis, I think we would use the word tackle. This is Paul saying, I am going to tackle Christ because Christ has tackled me. Not in the sense of football, but again, this idea of pursuing, grabbing, and holding on to because your life depends on it. Paul again repeats the fact that he's not totally made this 
a reality in his life because he says in verse 13 again, I do not consider that I've made it my own. The word consider there means to calmly draw a conclusion after much discussion and thought. I wonder if Paul, after the five participles in verse 8, if he started to slow down a little bit and he says, now I've been thinking about this and I calmly draw this conclusion. I... I haven't seized Christ this way yet in my life. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. The word forgetting here is actually stronger in the Greek. It means completely, totally forgetting. When he says what lies behind, it's actually past blessings and sins. This verse is often quoted by, with us thinking that what we're laying behind is our sin. And that's, that's true. Scripture certainly would say that you could go to 1 John 1, 9, where when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's totally within view of the Scripture. But I think here, based upon what Paul is talking about, it's not just forgetting the sins of the past. And for us, it's not just forgetting the sins, mistakes of 2010. But it's also forgetting the success, the achievement, the status I'll have to talk about that a little bit more. What would it mean to forget past blessings? Is there a way to do that that is in keeping with the text? We'll consider that in a moment. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. This is another athletic image. This is so um, precise. It is of the eye causing the hand to stretch out. To try to reach what you're trying to reach. And in recognizing your hand won't reach... This view which pushes forth your hand causes your feet to move. Paul is putting all of himself into what lies ahead. And then he concludes by saying, I, I press on. It's this word pursue again toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. And that is our text. This famous, well-worn text There's a lot of things that we could talk about. What I'd love to do is just rehearse this text again by pointing to a few principles. The first principle being this, that Jesus Christ is the greatest. He is worthy of my total love, trust, obedience, and worship. Jesus is my purpose and happiness. All things, including me, exist for his glory. Look at this text. Paul can't get through a verse, except with the uh, verse 11, without mentioning Christ a lot. Jesus Christ is central in Paul's vision, and he wants to hold forth Jesus as everything. If you turn just another page in your Bible, perhaps you will come upon Colossians chapter 1, 16 to 20. This is Paul writing again on the supremacy of Christ in all things. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus Christ is the greatest. Will you read these words with me, please, in unison? Jesus Christ is the greatest. He is worthy of my total love, trust, obedience, and worship. Jesus is my purpose and happiness. All things, including me, exist for his glory. This statement has so captured uh, our thoughts in the senior high that we actually have a slide dedicated to this. And in addition to reading things like the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, we occasionally recite this to each other to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is the greatest. Notice in Colossians 1 where it says in verse 17, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Verse 16 says that all things were created through him and for him. All things exist for Christ. I enjoy reading the Puritans, those dead guys from some 400 years ago. They get a bum rap, actually. We view them as sort of prudish Puritan sort of people. But actually, if you took time to read them, not the ones who were maybe uh, politically influential, but not all that much in love with Jesus. But if you read the ones who were passionate about God, who wrote theology, who pastored churches, you would come across not prudish and reserved people, but very passionate people. Consider what Thomas Brooks, an English Puritan and author who was actually persecuted by the British government for his beliefs, said, Christ is a jewel worth more than a thousand worlds, as all know who have him. Get him and get all. Miss him and miss all. Jesus Christ is the greatest. Another principle in this text is going to be worded in a lengthy and cumbersome way, but I think we can walk through it and understand. It says that resulting from repentance... Of my sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Imputed righteousness is the basis for my reconciled relationship with God. Resulting from repentance of my sin and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Imputed righteousness is the basis for my reconciled relationship with God. Imputed righteousness is a theological term that tries to condense A beautiful thing that Pastor Joe already mentioned, we've sung about in songs, and we can see even in a verse like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus Christ to be sin. Catch that. The Father makes the pure and holy sinless Son to be sin, even though Christ himself knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. As Paul brings out in Philippians 3, 2 Corinthians, and other places, this is the divine exchange, the great exchange, where Christ takes our sin, our impurity, our failure, our transgressions, and in exchange, instead of his wrath and burning judgment for all eternity, he gives us the perfection of Christ. He just doesn't take us from the mire and set us back to some sort of spiritually neutral plane. He elevates us and makes us sons and daughters. He adopts us. 
To be imputed with righteousness means we are given Christ's righteousness. This is different than the um, than what is sometimes called the, the doctrine of infused righteousness. Where if you believe and work really hard and are a good person for most of your life, you will either in this life or in some sort of another world to come, sort of gradually become righteous. That's an infused righteousness, a very slow process, which actually scripture doesn't refer to. What scripture is saying here is that Christ's work on the cross is so magnificent that God puts on Christ our sin and we get his righteousness. This is the basis for my reconciled relationship with God. Uh, Another Puritan, Henry Smith. He, that is God, hideth our unrighteousness with his unrighteousness. He covereth our disobedience with his disobedience or his obedience. He shadoweth our death with his death that the wrath of God cannot find us. Christ becomes our protection. Christ becomes the one bearing the sin that we committed and suffers the death we deserve to die, that we would gain the righteousness and standing with God that he had already earned. With repentance of our sin and faith in who Jesus is, Son of God, and his work, perfect life, death on the cross, and his resurrected body, we get the righteousness of Christ. That is what he's talking about when he says, I have a righteousness. I'm in right standing with God now, not based on what I've done, but on what Christ has done. Another principle is that my pursuit of Christ is the natural response to Christ's sovereign capture of my heart. Now, when I say natural, I don't mean natural for just any person. I I mean that our response to Christ, our pursuit of Christ, is what naturally happens when we are new creations. We actually run from Christ on our own. But when we are born again, we are given a new heart, not one of stone, but one that beats for him. Not one that is calloused and desensitized, but one that is passionate. We respond to what Christ actually initiates. Notice where he says in verse 10 that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. This power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. So that he goes on to say in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Our pursuit of Christ is response to Christ's pursuit of us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter. I was the deer. He stalked me, took unerring aim, and fired. We pursue Christ. But indeed, we are responding to what he has already done. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. This is the way God rescues his people who are running from him in the opposite direction. Whether calling Abraham from his pagan life in Mesopotamia or getting Moses and calling on him Rescuing him even though he was a baby in a basket. Whether calling David to be king when he was just a boy in a field. 
whether placing his call on John the Baptist when he was still in the womb or sovereignly breaking into a hard-hearted murderer's life and going to Paul on the road to Damascus, we respond to, we pursue Christ after he sovereignly captures our hearts. Recently, I went with a team of people from College Park to India uh, on a vision trip to see our partnership there with Good News for India, which is an umbrella organization for many wonderful ministries that are taking place there. Uh, got to see a, a lot of things, got to meet some incredible Christians who are suffering greatly for their faith in Christ. Also got to see cultural and historical places that are important in India and therefore important in Hinduism. This is a gentleman at the Ganges River. He's come because it's one of their holy sites where they go to a place uh, to worship their gods and to be cleaned spiritually. They don't have quite the same concept of sin that we do, but they go to the river Ganges to, to be washed away from the spiritual confusion and illusions of their life as they try to attain to their better future. This is uh, another place crossing the Ganges or Rikikesh. This is where the Beatles were writing uh, dozens of song in a drug-induced haze. This is me actually up on the uh, edge of a, a small town up in the mountains with the Himalayas in the background. This, this isn't a scenic site, but this is also a holy site in Hinduism because uh, their most holy gods reside in these mountains. In Hinduism... You go to holy sites to find God. But in Christianity, God has come to earth to find us. Religion is always the striving after striving after striving to reach out to God. But what we see is that in Christianity, God recognizing that we are dead in our sins has come to rescue us. This is the incarnation. This is what we celebrate God in flesh, not us reaching out to him, but him coming to rescue us. Turn back in your Bibles just a page or two to Ephesians chapter two. We'd like to see how God's initial grace actually then becomes something that we respond to. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight, nine and ten. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. What's going on here is God saves us by his grace. The way that um, the language is structured in the Greek, it's actually pointing to the fact that not just God's grace is a gift, but even the faith we have is a gift from him. We cannot boast in him sending Christ because we were dead in our sins when he did that. We cannot even boast in our faith because even that faith is a gift from God. Why does God have to do this radical capturing of our hearts? He does so as it's revealed in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We pursue Christ because he has already captured us. And indeed, this grace is irresistible. In the words of a song by Cutlass called Taken by Love, they sing that you've taken me by love, you've taken me by grace, 
You've taken me away. I can't resist because you've captured my heart. Christ captures our heart that we might pursue his. Another principle in this text is that what is ahead of us is greater than what is behind us. What is ahead of us is greater than what is behind us. You get this sense from Paul that while he's experienced incredible things and he's been following Christ now for some 30 years, he's actually able to say, not only do I consider my achievements in this world garbage, I will take everything as a loss compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. Paul, an apostle, 30 years into his faith, is still saying, I've got so much farther to go. What I achieved, I can thank God for. But I'm not going to rest there. Because where I need to go spiritually, I have a lot farther road in front of me than the road I've already traveled. What is ahead of me is greater than what is behind me. And it is good to note That Paul writes this not just to individuals, but he writes it to a church. And so if I may humbly offer a pastoral caution about nostalgia and sentimentalism. It is possible to become the sort of person, and it is possible, God forbid, that we become the type of church that actually thinks our greatest days are in the past. And this can happen once a church has some history. I'm not here saying not to be thankful for the past and to recognize what God has done. But that's just the point. Generally, when we get nostalgic, we get sentimental. We don't actually remember that it is God who's done these great things. We get attached to things like buildings or programs or memories. And we forget that it is God that has worked in them. So if you're looking to the past with a sense of thanksgiving, like the holiday we tried to celebrate last month, that is excellent. But Paul here wants to put forward that we need to be hungry for more. Clara Barton is best remembered for organizing the American Red Cross. She was an American pioneer of teaching, nursing, as well as being a humanitarian. She puts it this way. I have an almost, almost, Complete disregard of precedent and of faith in the possibility of doing something better. It irritates me to be told how things have always been done. I defy the tyranny of precedent. I go for anything new that might improve the past. I'm not talking here about developing new theology. Matter of fact, when it comes to theology, new generally isn't true. I'm not talking about forgetting the goodness of God in my life, your life, or College Park's life in the past. But to be careful about this. That let us never grow so attached to the past that we think our greatest days are behind us. Because in Christ, the greatest days are ahead. To be attached to the past in a debilitating, nostalgic way is to say we actually will never attain to the things of the past. We've actually kind of arrived in the past. Let's try to get there. But there is backwards. Press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. Because no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So let's move further in 
and further up. But I ask a question as I come to this text. Perhaps you notice it as well. I'm trying to figure out what the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is. And as you go back through the text, you actually find a bunch of pronouns that are just kind of generic. There's a that and a couple it's and a what. As though Paul assumes that we know what this prize is. And honestly, I wrestled. I read commentaries who take you to all sorts of other verses to try to capture what this prize might be. Let the context define the answer of what is the goal for the prize of the upward call. Verse 7, it's the sake of Christ. Verse 8, it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 9, it's being found in Christ. Verse 10, it's knowing Him and His resurrection power and sharing in His suffering and becoming like Him in His death. The reward, the prize, the goal of the Christian life is Christ himself. The reward, the prize, and the goal of the Christian life is Christ himself. Paul is pointing to the greatness of Christ at every verse. If he's not talking about how great Christ is in verses 7 through 10, then wanting to, in verse 11, to be a spiritually living a person among the, the spiritually dead, in verses 12, 13, and 14, he talks about straining forward to Christ. Christ has captured Paul's vision because Christ is the treasure. Verses that indicate this. For instance, look at Psalm, that should be 37, verse 4. It says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight. Let your heart be full of what's in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Let let the Lord be the one who makes you happy. Let the Lord be the one who overfills your heart. Let the Lord be the one that your heart desires and God will give you the desire of your heart. There are a lot of other applications of that verse. But Psalm 37.4 puts forward to us in a parallel way. Make the Lord the desire of your heart and He will give you Himself. The New Testament says this as well. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So certainly, if you're going to please God, you must believe that He's there. This is not the prayer of Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life where he prays, God, if you're up there. This is not an if you're up there. This is a God, I know you're there. And I believe that you reward those who seek you. What's the reward for seeking God? God. Christ is the treasure. He is the reward. He is the prize. He is the goal. Paul wants to press on to make it, that is Christ, his own. Because Jesus Christ has made him his own. This tackling of Christ calls to mind another tackling of God. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with God and said to God, amazing passage, I will not let you go until you bless me. But now I'm holding on to Christ for much more than a mere blessing from God. I'm holding on to Christ because I want God himself. 
The reward, the prize, the goal of the Christian life is Christ. But how do we embrace Christ in this way? How do we embrace Christ? Uh, A few words of final application. It's actually just taking this text and applying it to your own life. Verse 4. Place no confidence in your status or accomplishments. Verses 7 and 8. See your status and accomplishments as garbage compared to Christ. The things we have in this life aren't bad. The good things are from God. The difficult times are from Him. But compared to Christ, our accomplishments and our sin don't even dare to be mentioned. Value knowing Jesus Christ in a personal, ongoing, experiential way over everything. Instead of hoping in your own sincerity and in your own efforts, rely on Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death to make you right with God. Verse 9. How can we embrace Christ in this way where he is the prize, he is the reward? How do we go for the win? Verse 10 would point to us to say that we could take courage That the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power God is funneling into your life as his child. Ephesians chapter 1, 19 and 20 says the very thing. Take courage that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that God is funneling into your life. So as you look forward to 2011, you can embrace Christ. You do not need to have fear because the very power... That snatched Jesus from death. The very power that undoes the plans of Satan. Is the very power that God is funneling into your life. As his child. Right now. Embrace Christ in this way. By expecting and welcoming trials. Becoming like Jesus includes suffering like Jesus. Paul told his young churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You want a promise of Jesus to cling on to? (laughs) Take comfort from the fact Jesus said, I raised the dead, I fed the hungry, and they killed me. We're going to get it. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is happening to you. And Paul promises in his letter to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the words of Augustine, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. So we, the sinful sons of God, viewed perfectly through the shed blood of Christ, will endure suffering Because it's the way that we become like Christ. And finally, embrace Christ in this way. By possessing the type of sanctified discontentment with your own spiritual progress. That ends up propelling you into an ongoing, relentless pursuit of Christ. Have the type of spiritual discontentment. Not one that's critical. Not one that makes you cranky. Not one that makes you sound like a spiritual Eeyore. 
but one that just says, oh, God's been so good in the past, but I have so far to go in the future. And to have that sort of spiritual discontentment with your own growth that says, I am going to pursue Christ in a relentless, ongoing way. Finally, I'd point you to one small word in the text by way of conclusion. Look in verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The normal expression in the New Testament is Christ Jesus, the Lord. But here, Paul clarifies that he is not just the Lord He is my Lord. And so whether we think of this holiday season as being thankful in the past, celebrating his his incarnation yesterday, and knowing that we have the grace to go into the future with New Year's, see him not just as the Lord, but your Lord. Because he is the greatest. And he is worthy of all your pursuits and passions. Father God, thank you for pursuing us and rescuing us in Christ. I pray that you will make us lovers of you. May we see the greatness of Christ in such a way that will move us beyond the nostalgia of the past to say, only if I may have Christ. I'd go through suffering and death. I'd lose every benefit this world's ever given me if I could have you for the win that is in our life for your glory for our joy i pray in the name of jesus christ baby lord and soon returning king amen you are dismissed